Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On this episode, what can we make of a language that has 32 different words for field? Writer and broadcaster Manachon McGann encountered the remarkable richness of the Irish language as a young child, and his grandmother Sheila was determined that he would learn to speak it in a place where it was the common language of daily life. That was Marich in the West Kerry Gaeltacht, where Manachon spent his childhood holidays in his grandmother's house. The Irish he learned there dates back to a time when the multiplicity of words for objects, actions and ideas reflected a way of life with a profound appreciation for the natural world. In Dingle, Manachon spoke with Ireland's Edge founder Nuala O'Connor about his new book, 32 Words for Field, Lost Words of the Irish Landscape. Manachon, on Jasve, Count Lath, August, Fortigate, Ireland's Edge. In our era, Shannon, I got there and also Corcogrina, the father in law. So, this, this book is a very unusual book, I think, because it is indeed 32 words for field and many, many lost words and even dying words for the Irish landscape are mentioned in that book and referenced and spoken about. But it's also an autobiography, I think, in that your encounter with Irish is unusual, but also it is your life lived through the language in a very personal way. So your take, if you like, your embodiment of it is yours. But over all of that is the figure of your grandmother, Sheila. Yeah. So w- let's start with Sheila and her role in all of this. So Sheila was a Republican revolutionary. She was like a terrier. She was this passionate, idealistic, powerful woman who was the niece of the O'Reilly. So the O'Reilly, Michael Joseph O'Reilly, in 1916, Easter Monday, he goes out to sacrifice his life in the GPO. He knows he's going to die because he thinks the GPO is a, is a, is a failed escape. And my grandmother watches him dressed in his beautiful tweeds and his silver sword, saying goodbye to his four children, his four sons and his pregnant wife, knowing he'll never see them again. And my grandmother adored her uncle. And this was her watching this man sacrifice his life for Ireland, for the Irish language. So she was 16 at the time and she determined she was going to devote her her life to his mission. And in the years up to 1916, so 1912 to 1916, the O'Reilly had brought Sheila and her brothers and uh, the O'Reilly's two sisters out to the Blasco Islands every summer. And they'd either sleep on the floor of Uncrehenach, of Tomaso Crins, or of the King's house or of Pegsair's house every day. And they would like collect seagull eggs and they would watch as the seals were, were you know, killed and the uh, oil was drowned out. And they would just immerse themselves in that Irish language. So that, for my grandmother, was those two things, knowing an Irish language that was rooted to a particular location that was built around a lifestyle that hadn't changed you know, since almost Neolithic times and then this hero sacrifice of her uncle so she then devoted her life to keeping those glimpses and I come along in 1970 and I'm just basically another another step in that trail so for her the obviously Irish was central in all of this but also her republicanism and her political ideology but for you it was all Irish really was it yeah, so, uh, you know, because, so after they moved down to the Blasco Islands, 1912 to 1916, then the O'Reilly built his wooden house, a bungalow in Ventry, and then my grandmother's mother built another one in, in Mariach, on the other side of Kirkogrina. And so I would, that part of my life, that quarter of every year, was immersed in the Irish language, was going to, to the school in Mariach, um, was, you know, was going to visit our ex-Blasket Islanders that were friends of my grandmother. But then the other life was this life in Donnybrook. Three quarters of my year, I was going to a Jesuit school, I 
years living in Dublin. So it was those two elements. But definitely, the I mean, the politics was still going on when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s because my grandmother was still involved with the hunger strikers in, in the maze and H-block. So that was still a part of it. But what she really wanted us to get was the language. If we got her provisional politics, she would have been happy. I fa- she failed <laughs> to get me on that. Yes. So um, I just wonder, you, you must have been from reading the book, a quite an unusual child, because, <laughs> the, you know, you were obviously learning Irish in, in, a, in a regular way mm-hmm. because it was the language of communication down here. It was spoken by everybody. There was very little English here when you, when you were a child. Mm. Uh, however, you know, th- there, are, there are all sorts of other things. I just wondered what was going on in your head because you were taking in so much that is now, uh, you know, coming out in the material that you're using in this book. So you don't call yourself an anthropologist, a folklorist, a linguist, but all of those kind of classifications seem to be going into your little head when you were a kid. Um, And you also spent a lot of time with old people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing because you don't want to know what was going on in my head then or now, to be fair. Like, I was a misfit. I was an oddball. I was a deliciously happy little child. And I remember as long as I was fed, and I closed down Benner's Hotel in Tralee once because I wasn't fed in time at the age of three. But as long I was just the sitting, the smiling, happy, sort of mop-a-top child looking at everything and, and just was... But I was happy because I had contact with this sort of... with other voices, with... We're all using that word, but with other voices, um, with these, with with these sort of spirit voices inside my head that sort of seem nourishing and just seem to connect me with nature and something bigger. So I had that world, and I was, I, you know, so I, I didn't probably have many friends in school, but I loved older people. I loved connecting with nature that was around me and people. And to be fair, it sounds like a dream now. I remember in the old house in the bungalow in Mariach, um, with these cardboard walls, beaver board walls, I would take Deneen and O'Donnell's dictionary to bed with me at the age of 11. In fact, I clearly remember when, um, what was that, when all the farmers, Bob, Bob Dylan and all these farmers get farm aid. I remember that evening watching farm aid and Willie Nelson and all, and then taking the dictionary to bed and just leafing through it and engorging myself, feeling this was... I was accessing a world that was basic, that was rich and potent and infinite. And it was the exact opposite to the sort of the tawdry smallness of that Dublin world of my Fisher-Price toys or watching, you know, Saturday Swap Shop. There was this infinite, there was this nourishing sense of, of connection to the Irish language world. So there's two aspects of the language that I'd like you to talk about. One is the exquisite precision of it. So there are, as you say, 32 words for field. So we know exactly what kind of field. Mm -hmm. A field where cattle are kept at night, a field for dancing, a pasture, grazing land. Everything is given its place in the word Mm -hmm. system. And then on the other side, there's this other sort of almost spiritual dimension to it, which is the opposite of precision and which is fluid and, and, and evolving and uh, suggests a kind of emotional or, or sort of psychic sense in the language. So could you just talk about those, yeah. those two aspects of it? It's, I mean, yeah, you've hit on something so fascinating there. So as you say, all those words, so, so cluing, a meadow between two woodlands, like Bonog, a field for games of dancing, tour, uh, I know, was a town, an arable field in an arid area, Raedlin, um, a smooth field, Maunair, Machara, and each 
one of those. What they do is they mean you are absolutely rooted to your landscape. You know the, 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 the quality of the ground, the ability of it is, the fertility of the ground, the, what the effects of the weather have on any particular ground. So you are totally rooted and you have to be because this is a subsistence-based you know, society that had been going on basically since we, since our ancestors arrived here in the early Bronze Age or the late Neolithic even, we have learned how to, how to claw and survive our land, uh, to survive on this hard rock. So we had to do that. But then in such a difficult world, we needed that ability to escape into the other world. And so as you say, there's words, words like, um, like um, Scrimplini. And Scrimplini are these supernatural eye, lights that appear before your eyes to, when you sort of get too near the other world. And the great example of that is the two words, counter, which every one of us learns in school. Counter means this district or this place or this region. And then the opposite, altar. And so altar means the opposite. It means the other world, the nether world, the other sort of um, dimensions beyond. And it was known by our people. As you know, you look, you ask, you ask your grandfather, your great, your great, your, your grandmother, and they'll tell you, yes, they would have encountered the fairy world maybe at night when they're coming home from the, the pub. So there was this world and the other world, and we recognised there was only a thin veil between them. And there were like the word, and some people could access, would jump from one to the other. So the word pukin means an invisible covering that allows otherworldly beings appear invisible in this world. So if you have that, if you have that absolute words, words that are earthy, that are rocky, that are, that are soil-based, and then this just beside them, just a veil away, this infinity, this expanse to escape into, and anything can happen, anything. It's infinite and magical. That is both you know, it's the limits of all consciousness, of all imagination, but it's also our understanding of quantum physics. It's also our new understanding of what reality is. Like this table is solid, and yet it is also a collection of quaking molecules and atoms that if we were in the right vibration, our hands would go right through it. Like it's so this is suggested by a very ancient language already there yeah. for, the, for the taking, and that we have become narrowed in our perception of a mind consciousness and... Yeah all the other stuff that comes out of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also struck by, and you, I have had some sense of this myself living here, of the way that people locate themselves in the landscape so that um, you don't say, hang on a minute, I'm here with your mother, which is not, you know, doesn't give anybody a sense. <laughs> they will say, I'm back west. They'll say it in English or in Irish. Yeah. So they use shear a lot here for fawn shear, tear shear, all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So which is literally go west, which is where a lot of people would be going yeah. anyway. And we have it even in tunes like Come West Along the Road okay. is a tune that, has, uh, that, that relates to that, that speaks to that. So I think that because I know that you're vegan and that you are very much bound up with environmental issues, that does that come out of that, that sense that I'm actually just located here I'm part of something that's much bigger than me. I'm not in command of this field, of that road, whatever it is. is so there's a sense that you're enmeshed rather than one little atom kind of doing its own thing. Exactly. Like, as you said, you cannot give directions when speaking Irish without knowing where you are in relation to the sun, without relation to this star that is, you know, far above us. And that changes everything. Like, the minute anyone says they're going to Kerry, they say, Tom Dulcier, oh yes, as you say, I'm going yeah. southwards west. Or, there was that lovely example that hit home to me. There was Mike Ida, a man uh, who, just, who lived just beside the blacksmith's house down in Maria. And I remember I was trying to open the door of the garage when I was young. And I couldn't open, I couldn't open it. He sees me going by 
And he says, Kasunokan in Aigni Jaina. And I, I didn't understand because he was speaking, you know, very fast. And my Irish wasn't Kasunokan in Aigni Jaina. I couldn't, I couldn't open the door. I tried opening it. And then he comes over and he says, Kasunokan in Aigni Jaina. Now, my grandmother, from the story she was telling me, I knew Irish had this almost incantatory quality. So I thought his words had magically opened the, gar- the door. But what he was saying, obviously, was Kasunokan in Aigni Jaina, turn the key against the sun. The idea of matching the cylinder of a lock with this, with this star that is burning out high above us was just beyond me. But if you are that rooted to the very minutiae of a cylinder and out to the other, it by definition will change your take on everything else. So it's this expansiveness. And as you said, it's because it's, it's ancient, but how ancient? It's not just, you know, 2,000 years. It's one of the Indo-European languages. So that brings us on to, it brings us far, far back into whole other realms. Now, that, that brings me on to your travels uh, outside of this country to India and to Africa and to very far flung places. And you were, I suppose... I could define you almost as a traveller in that phase of your life. I mean, but um, an actual traveller as opposed to, you know, a metaphorical traveller. So you you find uh, the further you go away, of course, the more you encounter ancient languages, ancient religious practices, ancient theologies, that in fact you yourself have a foot, one foot, as you describe it, I think, in a very ancient tradition, ancient belief system, um, and then I think, do you decide then to put both feet into it and and come back? Exactly, yeah. So you remember when I was saying I was the, the lost little idealistic kid? That's fine until you're 17 or 18 and suddenly your parents or the school or everyone says, you need to settle down now. You, there's quality, you can get a good mortgage, you can get a good job and a degree and a mortgage. And I realised I couldn't do that. I realised I was going to implode and I would end up in a mental institution and that was fine. I didn't mind ending up, but if I could find a way of not doing that, of allowing that free brain, so I did that by fleeing. So I went off, you say, to Africa, to South America, to India for a long time and it was one day, we were... Then we did that for about seven years. Then Ruan, my brother, and I started making T.G. Gahar documentaries about all those places. And eventually, in the year 2000, we were filming in Yunnan province in China. And we were kicked out of there by the, the Communist Party. We had to flee to Taiwan. And I was underground on an island off Taiwan, Lanyu Island, where um, the Yami people live. And Mate, Shapen Mate Nan, this old man who lived in a tunnel underneath the island, he, he was telling me something about his, his tradition. And he was he sort of, to show me how they used to fight he had his homespun jerkin on and he pulled a little dagger out and came at me and I, I was petrified I was in this underground tunnel and I was petrified and then he started to sing and he said look I didn't mean to petrify you I didn't mean to frighten you but we are a coastal people and you probably too are coastal people because most people in the round the world, around the world were coastal I'm going to sing you one of my songs from the birth of my people and you might understand then because we don't share language. And the minute he did, those old Blasket Island songs that I had heard going to visit Courtney Cahan and the other islanders when I was young came back to me. And I realised, why the hell am I fleeing? All of that rootedness, that connection with something bigger is at home. So as you said, I came back, started planting my trees, started growing my veg and exploring this rather than running away. And so this book has sort of come out of all of that. And... The vocabulary in this is huge, really. Mm. And I'm just wondering, say, when you were 17 or 18, how would, how would you describe your actual Irish at that stage? Had you got all this arcana already in you and you had a glimmering that there was more there? Or 
were you were you just conversationally just completely adept or what what mm. what now I know you you did a degree in Irish as well I did I probably lost everything during the degree in UCD I I mean what I had when I was young going around staying in in at the in Binding Owl at the pier list talking listening to the old fishermen as they talked or hanging out in the blacksmith or even just going around my grand grandmother to the ex Blaskill Islanders I've probably lost some of that gorgeous richness that it came into me but I didn't go into my brain so the minute I'd recognise it but it, like even in the last year I've done a project called Sea Tamagotchi going around the coast of Donegal, Mayo and Sligo collecting coastal words and holy made the richness the richness of words for different types of waves of rocks of seaweeds of, of currents of water that I had never heard before it's given me an entirely different understanding of the coasts and I haven't even done that here down in West Kerry yet but we know that required me just turning up at a pier and asking an old fisherman and these words that well, some of them had never been written down before at least aren't in the main dictionaries so I'm just wondering then are there words that you have that you learned as a child that described something that was still a reality then that are now gone. Now, these are not words that you've collected or mm-hmm. seen written down or described mm-hmm. or heard in archive recording. Only. These would be words that you knew in everyday use as a child down here mm-hmm. that are not, no longer in use. Golly. I mean... That word Dionach hits home. I don't know is it still in use or not. Dionach is the lonesomeness of a cow bereft of her of her calf. And I, like I, that was just a word we'd go down to the Johnson's house in Welling Island and get milk every day or they'd bring the milk up to us in a little in that little silver canisters they'd, they'd have and meanwhile you know every day the, the milk pails used to go back on the horse and carts by the house across Galera Strand to, to Riesk but that Dionach I used to hear Dionach was that bellowing that happened you know the mother yearning desperate to have her calf again but um, knowing you know if for us to get milk you need to tear that away so it's words like that maybe or Lane She Lane She is still oh, used she, here yes, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not in any other language. Yeah, I don't know why they're connected. Lane She is that absolute mirror calmness of of some of the inland bays here. They don't have it in Donegal or Connemara. Um, they have they have different words. They have calm laddie and things. But yeah, Lane, she just makes me feel you just have that nourishment. If I hear it in Dublin, it's not gonna do it. But hearing it here, it makes that everything's okay again. And uh, uh, tonight is very much a night of words in, in words and their meanings. And, and you make constant reference to your family, to your ancestors, to the Orahala, obviously, and your grandmother, but also to ancestors further back, the most illustrious of whom, I think, would be Aegon Orahala, yeah. who is um, a, a poet of the old Gaelic order, um, one of the last of the filly, and supposedly the originator of the Ashling form. So do you, do you feel a connection? Do you think that, that, that you're in a line of, of word people? <laughs> Yeah, so he's going back, I don't know, you know, my great, 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 great granduncle. That was a, some way is too far back for me, but for the O'Rahilly, who was only thinking he was his great, great, great granduncle, he felt a connection to him, and that's what sent him out on his mission, on his heroic mission. And then, so I then take on the O'Rahilly, and the O'Rahilly feels to me like yesterday because my grandmother told me all his stories. So in one way and directly, it's sort of stepping stones. Aegon O'Rahilly, the great poet, influences the O'Rahilly, the great warrior. The O'Rahilly then influences my grandmother, and then I, I am just uh, this little tractor engine that's being pulled by all of their legacies, their heritage. And like the, the, the Aegon O'Rahala and the O'Rahala were both tragic figures. The O'Rahala died young in terrible circumstances mm-hmm. and Aegon, it must have been the end of his whole, of a world order and that he, he was a poet in, in all of that. A high status poet at the beginning, a destitute pauper at the end. 
Um, and you're you're looking at something that's that's dying. I don't know, or is dead. Some of the words are dead. Does what does that do to you psychically? I mean, I, I don't see, see Aegon as dead or tragic in any way. His spirit, because of his writing, his spirit is still burning. We listen to his words now and we hear this power of the last vestiges, as you say, of a bardic tradition that went right back to Druidic times. You know, it was just about kept alive to today. We still have the language, we still have that richness. So maybe I'm rosy-eyed, but I still feel it's all to play for. We have not cut off or broken any connection yet. Now is the time. Gafaidling, a Shogalera, Hogan Tarash going. We can grab this again and just move forward with it. Well, that's as good a note to end on as any. Milibuyakas, Ankan. Many thanks to Manahan McGann for joining Neil O'Connor in Dingle. On our next episode, Shiver Quinlan speaks to Mark O'Connell and Bush Mukarzel about their theatrical adaptation of Mark's book, To Be a Machine. Well, transhumanism, um, as I understand it, is, is really this quite extraordinary social movement that's predicated on the notion that the next sort of phase of human evolution will involve uh, a merger with technology. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Gassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge. Thank you.